Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you and praise you that this day is a day that we celebrate because of you. God, you have fulfilled your promises and you sent your son, not just to be a gift, but to be the ultimate gift and redemption for our sins and for our lives. And we do say thank you. We thank you that he was a declaration, that you are a faithful God and king. And we pray even now that you allow that faithfulness to be seen, even right now, um, amongst us today. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The question before us today is quite simple. The question is simply this. Who's in charge of history? Who's in charge of history? We see this time and time again. What I love here in the Gospel of Luke is that Luke is the only gospel writer to relate Jesus' birth and his events into the context of world history. And we see that specifically at Luke chapter 2, looking at verse 1. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Crinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, I know this may not seem uh, maybe uh, new or, or very interesting to you, but what, the concept I want you to understand to hear tonight as we look at the birth of Christ is that the birth of Christ was not just a birth of a son. It was a declaration of God's faithfulness to us. God himself sent his son in the midst of the world's most powerful empire at the time in order to set up his kingdom. I love what Brad House and Dr. Allison, uh, Greg Allison say, talk about empires and kingdom in their book, book Multi-Church. Listen to these words. He says this. It says, empires are built for their leader or leaders. Emperors tax some citizens, enslave others, and expand without empathy for the sake of self-glorification. Kingdoms, on the other hand, or in contrast, are built for the benefit of their citizens. In healthy kingdoms, the monarchs see their calling as an opportunity to serve their people. And what we see here, even from the book of Luke from the very first, is we see this juxtaposition between empire and kingdom. We see the empire of Caesar and his power and authority, using his power and authority for his own advantage. Caesar speaks and the empire responds. Caesar instituted a census for the purpose, not just of counting people, but he also did this for the purpose of taxation. But look at that as opposed to what, what Jesus has done in Christ through the kingdom. While the kingdom, while the empire is, is, is always interested about collection of taxes, the kingdom is interested about those who pay the taxes. Baby Jesus, who was God in flesh, was sent to serve the world. And he didn't have to gather people in order to do that. He simply sent the gift in order that he might embody and enable the ransom that we all needed. Luke portrays Caesar as the unknowing agent of God whose decree leads to the fulfillment of the promised rise of a special ruler from Bethlehem. So let me go back to my original question. Who rules or who's in charge? God is. God controls all of history. Through this pagan God's decree, the Son of God is born in Bethlehem. I love this. Proverbs says it best in Proverbs 21, verse 1. 
It says this. It says, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. God is in control of, of history, and he's used the very nation, the very empire that was set up at that time in order to, and the very decree that they have uh, imposed upon the people in order to bring forth the promised Messiah. In the narrative of Jesus' birth, there are three questions that I want us to consider, and then I'll take my seat before we go down to answer this question, how God is in control of all of history. The first question I want to look at is Mary. Is Mary a vessel or is she a victim? We'll talk about that here in a minute uh, because she goes through a lot. The, the second question I want to look at is this. Why was there no room for Jesus if God is all-powerful and he's all-sovereign? Why was there no room for Jesus for in, in order for Mary to give birth? And lastly, the last question I want to ask, ask is this. Why a manger? Why place, place this precious gift, this, this unique gift that God has given us? Why put him in a manger? Let's go back to our first question. Is Mary a vessel or a victim? I mean, listen, consider Mary's situation. She's an unwed, pregnant teenager at the time. She's probably 12 to 16 years old. She was engaged to the man whom she loved. But because of God's interference in her life, it nearly took away the, the, the very one whom she loved, the, her fiancé, who she was engaged to. Being connected to God almost destroyed her engagement, believe it or not. At the end of her pregnancy, she's being forced to move by another's decree. She's about to have this baby, and here's another troubling thing coming in her life where she has to go and now pick up all of her belongings, all of her things, and travel over 100 miles to Jerusalem. And check this out. When she arrives at the, their destination, she doesn't even have a home to give birth. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you're following God and you're, you're, you're pursuing God and you're trying to do all the right things, but it just seems like time and time again, things, obstacles keep coming up over and over and over again. It's like, God, I'm trying to obey you. I'm trying to follow you. I'm really trying to, to do the things you've asked me to do. But time and time again, there's always obstacles placed before us. This is a good reminder for all of us that when we do God's will, we're not guaranteed a comfortable life. But we are promised that everything, even our discomfort, has meaning in God's plan. Amen? Amen. Emmanuel, God with us, means that he will be with you now to help you endure through the obstacles, the pains, and the troubles of life. That you don't have to work on this thing on your own. You have God with us, with you now. He will be with you at the end to wipe every tear from your eye. And he will be with you. He will reign forever to dispel and to relinquish evil forever from your presence. You have a God who has, has fully uh, ensures you better than all state. You're in good hands with your God, amen? Caesar's decree went out in God's perfect timing and according to God's perfect plan to bring his precious son into the world. This whole situation for Mary must seem crazy, to be honest with you, because to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it's about a hundred miles journey. 
Now, can you think about that? I did a little research not on, on Google Maps just to find out, hey, how long is 100 miles? If you walk from Louisville, Kentucky to Lexington, that's not even long enough. It's 71 miles to walk to Lexington. If you go to Berea, Kentucky, that's 91 miles, almost, but not, not close. Moorhead is about 129 miles away. It took 100 miles for her to walk, probably on a donkey, frustrated, angry, mad, going somewhere because the emperor has called her and her family to stand before him to be taxed. But even in her discomfort, Mary has to know that God has ordered her steps. You see, Mary gives birth upon her arrival. And I I don't know anything about, uh, well, yes, I do. I know a little bit about seeing the process of birthing. And I know that when that time comes, there's one thing that ladies like to do. They want to walk. They want to walk that They want to walk around the house. They want to walk around the neighborhood in order to accelerate the birthing process. And I can only imagine out of God's kindness, allowing her to walk those 100 miles or to be on top of a donkey for those 100 miles, it must have helped the process somewhat. You can laugh at that. That's okay. <laughs> God encourages the birth of his son through the traveling. Despite not knowing what was going to happen, despite having the inconvenience of God interfering with her and almost messing up her engagement, despite her being unwed and a pregnant teenager, God was still in the midst working through it all. Amen? Second question I want to ask is this. Why was there no room in the end? This is a good question. This is a good question. Man, if, if God is who he is and he's sovereign, he's majestic, God, why can't you have a place for your son to be born? Why, when he gets to, to Bethlehem, all the, all the places are taken. Every residency is booked up. I was struggling for this question for a long time. But here's the answer that I got from God and I want to share with you tonight. There was no room in the end because God didn't want to make room for himself. You see, God is not a selfish, self-centered God. He does, he's not, he's not self-absorbed or he doesn't have a self-centered mindset. He doesn't need to prove who he is because he is God and God all by himself. Now, let's not try and make God into a God of our own image, a God that we can understand. God didn't have room, didn't make room for his son in the end, not because he is poor, because he was trying to be mean or ostracize Mary and Joseph. He didn't make room in the end because he didn't want to make room for himself. He was content where he was placed, in a manger, born among animals, born in a feeding trough where animals would go and eat. So here's my third question, why a manger? Why not in the palace? Why not in Caesar's palace? Why not in the, the Ritz-Carlton? Why a manger? He wasn't born in a manger, not to conceal himself, but to reveal himself. You see, as a true king, Jesus is not afraid to associate himself to all people, to all nations, to all circumstances. He, he's not afraid to associate with those, um, he's not afraid to associate with us, nor call us his brothers or sisters. Jesus being in the, in the, born in a manger speaks to two things. It speaks to his humility, but it also speaks to our arrogance. Because if the truth be told, we don't want a king who's born in a manger. 
We want a king who's born in the palace. We want a king who's born in the White House. We want a king who looks like a king. But this king didn't come how you wanted him to come. He came as God has sent him with all humility, with all, all power invested in a manger that was provided by hospitable guests. I love how Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, it says, For we are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. God put Jesus in a manger so that no, not only so you can be associated with him, that there's no person in this, in this room can say, I can't relate to Jesus because hopefully none of us in this room have been born in a feeding trough. Amen. We all have, we, 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 Jesus has been put into the lowest state so that he can be associated with every human being, every nationality, every socioeconomic status that could be under the sun. He can relate because he was born in a manger. It's a beautiful thing to be born in a manger. It's also a beautiful thing to admit it's hard for us, us to accept at times that he was born in a manger. Him being born in a manger speaks, yes, to our humility, also to, our, to his humility and our arrogance, but it also speaks to his innocence and our guilt. First John, John chapter 1, excuse me, John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 puts it this way. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God to those who believe in his name. Did you catch that? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They didn't receive him because he didn't look like a king that they were anticipating or even we would anticipate now. You see, God has made himself accessible to everyone. In the manger, no one is, was excluded, and everybody is invited to see and to experience and to worship God's Son. If you are a peasant, if you are a homeless person, a peasant on the street, you could come to the manger and see. If you are an empirical guard or a, Ro a Roman soldier, you could come and see. If you worked in finance or in agriculture, he was in a place that was open and accessible so the whole world could come and see and rejoice in the gift that God has provided through his son. In verses 8 through 20, it talks about how the good news came to peasants, not rulers, how the lowly are exalted. Who was the first ones to hear this news? It's the shepherds. The shepherds hear, and the shepherds respond, and they respond with great joy, and God's joy is connected to our great gift. Notice what they celebrate. They don't, celebrate, they don't celebrate anything but a baby. It's not Jesus coming and dying on the cross. It's not him resurrected from the dead. They celebrate a baby. Helps us to know and to be reminded that they celebrated a baby because they recognized who this baby was and what he was sent to accomplish. It wasn't about what he did or what he doesn't do or what even he will do. They celebrated the gift that God had given in his faithfulness to provide for our sins and for the redemption of our sins. 
I love this. It's a good picture that kind of accompanies this in my mind. I'd like to show it to you really quick, um, if we can. It's a picture of from Genesis 1 all the way to Luke 2. It's a picture of, on the right, you see Sister Eve, who has that fruit in her hand, and the serpent entangling her at the bottom. But to the left, you have Sister Mary, who is, of course, pregnant. And you can see the comfort that Mary is giving her to know that, Eve, I know you made a wrong choice, and I know you got it wrong, but the baby inside of me, he's going to make it right. He's going to heal, he's going to redeem, and we can celebrate because God's faithfulness extends even to us through this baby. You see, while Eve caused heaven to mourn, Mary causes earth to rejoice, and we praise God for the rejoicing that ensues going forward. Notice the shepherds, they, they are not given Jesus' name. They're not giving his identity. They, they're not even told, they're not told who he is. They just, they're, excuse me, not, they're not given his name. They're only given his identity. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. It says it today, today in the city of David, a savior was born to you who is Messiah, the Lord. This, this will be a sign for you. He says, today in the city of David, a savior. Who is a savior? A savior is a warrior or a defender. He says, a Messiah, who is the Messiah? What is the Messiah? A Messiah is an anointed one, one who is anointed by God to complete the mission of God. And then lastly, he calls him Lord, ruler and sovereign one. God invites us to celebrate with him today. And I thank God because God causes us, the same way he causes us to celebrate in Jesus is the same way he causes you to celebrate right now. I don't know what situations you're going through right now in your life. Listen, this may be, this may be the saddest day all year for you because someone whom you love is no longer with you. Or someone you maybe who hoped to be with you tonight is not with you because they couldn't make it. And I'm speaking to you tonight. If, if that's you, if you are the person under the sound of my voice who is feeling discouragement and even maybe uh, fear or even uh, just apprehension from this day, I want you to know that God sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. And Jesus, in, in the birth of Jesus, God causes us to celebrate because even though we couldn't see the result, God calls us always to celebrate and to praise him in advance. You don't have to wait for God to show up for you to praise his name. Amen? You don't have to wait to see how it's going to end up. They're praising the baby now as if he's already king. He's a baby. He can't do anything for himself. He's dependent. He's dependent upon his mother and father for everything, but yet we are called to praise and worship this baby because in this baby is the hope of life and the redemption of the world. Our God causes us. He commands us to praise him even when you don't see the results that you want to see. He causes us to praise him even when things may not be working out as you would want them to work out. He causes you to praise him because his name is worthy of praise and worship. Don't allow your circumstances to define the character of God. Our God is good. He is holy. He is righteous. He's altogether lovely. And I dare you, I dare you, even in your grief, just to praise his name. 
just to give him worship tonight, not because their situation is good, but because our God is good. And he is righteous and altogether lovely. May we see him as such. In verse 21, we finally get his name. It says this, when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus. And I love that. I love that. The shepherds were not given a name. They were just given an identity. They said, go and look for this, this Savior. Go look for this Messiah. Go look for this Lord. You see, the name of Jesus echoes throughout the corridor of time and vibrates into eternity. In Genesis, he's known as the seed of the woman. In, Le- in, Levit- in Exodus, he's known as the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud and the fire. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the judge and the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In 1 and 2 Samuel, he's a prophet of the Lord. In 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, he's the reigning king. In Ezra, he's a faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah, he's a rebuilder of the broken down walls. In Esther, he's Mordecai. In Job, he's the day spring from on high. In Psalms, he is the Lord who is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's the embodiment of wisdom and the epitome of meaning. In the Song of Solomon, he is the lover and the bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the turning wheel in the middle of a wheel. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the furnace. In Hosea, he's a bridegroom married to a backslidden woman. In Joel, he's the one baptized with the Holy Spirit in the fire. In Amos, he's the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's a mighty savior. In Jonah, he's a forgiving God. In Micah, he's a messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he's the great evangelist crying out for revival. In Zephaniah, he's a restorer of God's lost heritage. In Haggai, he's a cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he's a merciful father. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. The name of Jesus echoes down and vibrates down the corridor of time into eternity. May we worship him with the worship that he deserves because what God has given us is not only good, it's sufficient and it's complete. Would you pray with me? Father, we do praise you and thank you. We thank you that you didn't give us a baby, but you gave us a rescue in Jesus. We stand in awe of your goodness and your kindness to us even now. That you would look to us as a people who have turned our backs to you time and time again. And we are reminded of your faithfulness to give despite our rebellion. And to love us despite our disobedience. How great is our God. We praise you, Father. I pray that you would raise up praise within our lips even now. That you would give us a praise that we can't, we can't control and we can't withhold from your holy and mighty name. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. I thank God that he came as the bread of life. But even upon his ascension, he gave us a way to remember who he is. And to remember this great gift that he's given us. 
On the night where he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke. And he said, take, the, eat, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup. So this is, a, this is the cup of the new covenant. Drink and do this in remembrance of me. I thank God that we have this way to remember that our God is not just the God who comes and tells us what to do, but he was broken for us so that we can be empowered by his spirit and through his love to follow in complete obedience. We have a God who is completely satisfied and made a way for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. If you're not a Christian, we would not invite you to this table, not because we're trying to excuse you, because this table is for those who have placed their trust and faith in Jesus. If you're not a member of this church and you are a Christian, we invite you to come and partake of the elements. If you're not, I would encourage you to stay in your seat and contemplate the things that have been said tonight. And please talk to myself or any other pastor about what it means to see Jesus as God's righteous, righteous son who's been given for the forgiveness of our sins. As our people come up right now, um, it's for communion. We'll have uh, uh, instructions on, up, up front on the, on the screen um, to give you instructions of how to move around. Come when you're ready. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.